A FedEx MD-11 cargo flight is landing at Newark when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to flip and catch fire? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. Hey, hey, hey. Um, this will be the first time we're recording since the Max thing. Yeah. And yeah, so we know that our comments age <laughs> like milk. <laughs> we, it's just so horrible. What horrible timing that the episode that came out. That, that we were week. like, the Max is great. Like, like, it's actually a really nice airplane. Hole in the airplane. Yeah. It's nice. Well, that, it's only the Max 9. Yes. Max, to be fair. Max 9. And the Max 10s, although they're not certified yet. So the Max, and they won't be. The Max 8200 theoretically could have the same issue, but none of them have door plugs installed. They actually have a door. So it is not an issue for the 8200 either. So we know about that, it. We know a lot about it. We know a Stop lot. sending us stuff, please. <laughs> that was, we, we heard about it from an inside source before all y'all. Yeah. So yeah, we heard about it before it hit the news. But because we got an inside guy, we got an inside guy. But as soon as I heard and I saw the picture right away, I was like, oh, this is not, not good, good for Boeing. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> I mean, this one has left their CEO in tears and it is it, this is this is an ugly one. Well, it's going to be a long time before we're going to have anything to say Dude, about this. Boeing. Oh, man, I, I we have theories on it and again we're not going to speculate um i know there's a lot of information out there about it already don't dive too deep yet because they're still investigating and they still have to create an inspection path in order for them to actually be airworthy again considered airworthy again did they ground any that have the door installed i know that not many if any u.s carriers do but i know some international carriers fly with a door Mm mm-hmm are those still flying? There are some that are still flying with other carriers that have the... Because I think like Copa has some. The door plug. Uh, Copa grounded, Aeromexico grounded, Turkish grounded, all their nines. All of them regardless of door configuration? As far as I know, they all use a plug. I thought I read something that Copa doesn't plug all of them. Yeah, because if the door's in place, then it shouldn't be an issue, Yeah, right? the, if it's, it's an actual door, it's a totally different thing. It has thing. to do with the fact that it's a plug. Yes. Well, I don't know fun. where I'm going to find that. I, I know there was a list. All right, anyway, let's see. Do we have any new patrons? Uh, Dude, yes. I don't remember. Yes, we yes, do. Okay. We do. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Thank you to our new patron, Jill. Hi, Jill. Hello. Thank you. Thanks. Very much for your patronage. Thank you for your patronage. I'm sorry that you joined right after we had our patron call. Yeah. Next time. (laughs) Yeah. Those will come up soon. I promise. Yeah. They'll be monthly for now on. During the holiday season. Oh my God. It's it's always so horrible. The span of time between September (laughs) and January. (laughs) It's very hard. There's a minor reprieve in November. Minor. And then holidays hit. And then it's a pain. Yeah. And then we get back on track again. Right. So. Right now we are in like the lowest of seasons, thankfully, like January on into like March, April, though we have some stuff planned, but that is usually lower season. This year maybe not quite as much. But we can usually stay pretty caught up on this. So uh yeah. Thank you for joining. Do all the normal stuff. Check out the newsletter. Check out the merch page. 
check out all the stuff I work very hard to put together for you. Cause That's right. I would like you to all be aware, for those of you, the very few of you, um, who are invited to our wedding, you have a leg up because one of the games during our wedding is trivia, and our entertainer slash DJ is pulling from the hard landings trivia list. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So you might have noticed, Miranda, that it got shared with an external source. That's why. I want to know all the answers. <laughs> you won't be there. You'll be taking formal photos. Damn. I know. But he was like, yeah. I'll tell my mom all the answers. He was like, I want, I want to do like a personal trivia round for you guys do you could you guys come up with a list of trivia questions about yourselves i'm like so funny story we have one <laughs> are you just gonna delete the questions about me because like yeah he's yeah, he's, just, he's just gonna pick from the list okay because like, um but he also wanted some aviation trivia i'm like there's some on there too there so have fun the answers aren't there but you can ask us for the answer and we'll review all of it before he obviously does anything with it but that's pretty neat yeah, yeah. it's cool he was like what are the odds so but. just go back to the episodes where we answer the <laughs> trivia yeah. questions and get the answers for the trivia questions. Yep. Okay. Uh, that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering FedEx Flight 14. Is it 14? Yeah. I it was yes. 18. Nope. nope. 14. No, it was 14 and then next one's 80. Right? That is correct. correct. We've got it. <laughs> not to foreshadow. <laughs> Thank you to JJ for recommending this episode. Thank you. And you might have noticed it got uh, moved up. A little bit. Because uh, we realized changed. that these There's are... There's a reason. They're, they're related. Yeah. Plans changed a little bit from the newsletter. Sorry. but <laughs> As always, I feel like that happens every month. I know. I think we need <laughs> to review the month before we send newsletters. <laughs> Be like, hey, is this logical? Yeah. We'll we'll do a little better job of that going forward. But that's that's partly on... that's Really, that's on all of us because we kind of like... I don't really, know. it's we have on to YouTube. Roll, yeah, but we have to roll the newsletter out, but then we also like go and start diving into one of the episodes, and we go, wait a minute, there's something else related to this on the list. Or, or we cannot do this. Or we cannot do this. Or, or we need to move it due to length, or who knows. Or we forgot that there's a bonus episode. Yeah, that might be foreshadowing. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so FedEx Flight 14. This accident occurred on July 31st of 1997. This was a McDonnell Douglas MD-11. With the tail number November 611, Foxtrot Echo. The MD-11, in case you don't remember, is the younger sister to the DC-10. It is sibling? Are, are we sure. genderizing your aircraft I'm now? Sure. They call them sister ships, right? Like, that's... Okay. That is the... It's, it's a very old terminology based on boats. So, yes. But we all know how uh, the DC-10 turned out, so... Yeah. The MD-11 had its own set of challenges, but the MD-11 was a larger version of the DC-10, stretched fuselage, some other changes. I was going to say, wasn't it skinnier? No, actually. It's the same width around. It's just longer, so it looks skinnier. Oh. But it's a bigger airplane than the DC-10. It did not sell as well. It was relatively successful for a short period of time, and there was a lot of airlines that used them. The very first time we talked about one was Swiss Air. Ah, because yes. Mm -hmm. Taking it back. Taking it way back. So, tri-engine airplane, one engine on each wing and one in the tail. FedEx still uses these. For this flight number. Yeah. Oh. Actually. And there's a lot of them in the cargo world still, the MD-11s, although they will get phased out over the next decade. But Don't they still have DC-10s too? A lot of those are gone now. Okay. There's only a couple carriers that still have them. FedEx had them until last year. They finally got rid of them. 
there's another company that actually just started leasing 35 plus year old DC 10s. Some of them 40 plus year old DC 10s that used to be FedEx birds. Why? They sent them into storage and another airline was like, cool, I'm going to take those. And uh, they were probably really cheap to acquire, but let uh, me tell you, the maintenance on those things is a nightmare pain? now. Yeah, that's why they, they don't got rid make of them. parts anymore. Yeah, and they're actually MD tens now because they were updated avionics and a few other changes to make them a little more modern. Also, staffing them though, there aren't many DC ten pilots left. Uh, no, because they don't fly anymore. No, no, the MD ten was what created the ability to do two pilot ops rather than have a flight engineer because the DC ten was still built with the flight engineer position. So the MD-10 was a much more modern version, just update to the cockpit. But anyways, the MD-11 was built as a two-person cockpit from the get-go. A little more modern airliner. It was relatively successful. American had them, Swiss Air had them, Delta had them. There was, there was quite a few of them in the world. KLM had them for a long time, actually. This was a flight from Singapore to Penang in Malaysia to Taipei in Taiwan to Anchorage to Newark. And I think the existing flight... It's just from Taipei to Anchorage. To Memphis. To Memphis, which Memphis is FedEx's home and hub. It's a very busy airport in the middle of the night. Yes, one of the busiest in the world in the middle of the night, turns out. That in Louisville, Kentucky, UPS. The captain for this flight was Robert Freeman. He was 46 years old. He had about 11,000 hours total at the time, of which 1,253 hours were on the MD-11. Not actually a whole lot. For a captain to me, not a, not not. I mean, not to bash twelve over twelve hundred hours, but we've talked about more. Yes, much like last episode. Yeah, like the, the Miranda episode. Now, to be fair, the MD eleven wasn't that old at the time. It wasn't super new or anything in ninety seven, but it was not old by any means. First officer was Donald Gooden, and I know that it sounds like I shortened that, but it's Gooden, G O O D I N. Gooden. If it was French, maybe. <laughs> But even then, with two O's, I don't know. He was 39 years old. At the time, he had 3,703 hours total, of which 95 were on the MD-11. Just 95. He was new to the type. Oh, boy. Very new. All flights up to Anchorage were normal. At Anchorage, a cargo and crew swap was completed, and fuel was added. Anchorage is still, to this day, a very busy cargo hub, because... Flights crossing the Pacific cannot usually make it as far as their final destination. And Anchorage became a really good airport for... Fuel. Fuel. Because there were so many large aircraft doing fueling operations year-round in Anchorage. This originally also is what they used to do with passenger birds. We've talked about it in the past, but... And live cattle. Yeah, yeah, that too. But it's still a stronghold, and it has developed over time into becoming a good place to shift cargo around between these flights. So maybe a bunch of cargo originates in Taipei, but it's bound for, I don't know, Miami or something, and the airplane is not bound for Miami. That gives them an opportunity to switch to maybe another airplane that is. So Anchorage became both a fueling stop and a good place to reorganize cargo correctly to go to the final destination. So not all cargo would be removed from the airplane, only what was not intended for the final destination. The flight was dispatched on an instrument flight rules flight plan with the number one engine thrust reverser inoperative. Are these bucket reversers? No, these are the slide. Okay. The planned flight time was five hours and 51 minutes, which was shorter than the scheduled time by 47 minutes. There was a nice tailwind. Joining the two-person crew were also three passengers, one in the jump seat and two in the cabin passenger seats, which do exist. 
on the MD-11 as they did the MD-10 as they do on most cargo aircraft, actually. Typically, these are traveling crew, so they're FedEx employees or other airline employees that need to reposition from one place to another. They also sometimes open those up if you work as a flight crew for certain carriers. Sometimes they have agreements where, like, yeah, you can hop on the passenger seats to go where we're going. Yeah, there's like three of them, right? Yeah, there's a handful of seats. Usually it's not more than a few people. So this one was three. More than likely because they're coming from Anchorage. It's not like these people were probably necessarily vacationing in Anchorage. I have a feeling they were repositioning. Repositioning, yeah. Yeah. The flight departed Anchorage. The captain was the pilot flying for this leg while the first officer was the pilot monitoring. The takeoff, climb, and cruise were normal. The flight cruised at 33,000 feet all the way to Newark. 1.02 a.m. and 11 seconds local time on the East Coast. This is Eastern Standard Time. Boston Air Route Traffic Control Center instructed the flight to descend and maintain flight level 180 or 18,000 feet. The flight acknowledged and began descending. Well, 1.03 a.m., so about a minute later, the flight crew discussed the approach and landing procedures for runway 22 right at Newark. The crew did a lot of calculating of landing distances required by using different amounts of auto braking, which aircraft auto braking, literally there's a knob and it automatically applies the wheel brakes at a certain amount based on what you set and your landing configuration. Remind me, is there a requirement now Mm -hmm. for both reversers to be working or all three? Because this had three engines. Yeah, three engines. So three reverses on this. No, and aircraft actually typically don't have to have both working. Okay. You just have to make sure that... You know? You know and that your takeoff and landing uh, runways are... Long enough? Long enough to, to stop? To help you, yeah, in case you need to stop. So. There might, don't quote me on this, there might be a requirement that if one thrust reverser is out, all other deceleration mechanisms must be working. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, yeah. Sense. I'm sure there's MEL requirements like that. There's restrictions and stuff when you have a Like if you have one reverser out, your wheel brakes must be working, your spoilers must be working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Again, don't quote me on that. I am not a professional. Yep. Ask Nick's dad. (laughs) Anyways, the crew eventually determined that max auto braking should be used to provide the best margin. So based on the runway length, if they use max auto braking rather than medium or low or anything like that, they determined that that would allow them enough margin on the far end of the runway where they're not having to eat up so much runway in landing. The captain stated, we got a lot of stuff going against us here, so we'll start with max. The first officer replied, quote, I mean, if we don't have the reverser, end quote, that was a short, Which just you don't. basically implied, you know, yeah. like we don't have it. So it seems kind of like a, yeah. seems like a no, duh, Got just it. use yeah. it. The captain asked the first officer twice during their descent to remind him to only use the number two and number three thrust reversers and to forego the number one. One sixteen a.m. and 16 seconds, the captain mentioned that the left landing light was inoperative and that only the right side was working. So the, these landing lights are on the wing routes. Okay. As they are on most airplanes these days. So they're right where the wing meets the fuselage. Big bright landing lights to light up the runway in front of you. And the left one wasn't working. 1.29 a.m. and 45 seconds, the Newark control tower cleared the flight to land on runway 22 right and advised, quote, wind 250 at 5, end quote, which is 250 degrees at 5 knots. 2-2 right then would be, the wind would be a little bit at an angle, but not too bad, relatively. It's only at five knots. Yeah, it's only five knots. It's very negligible. 1.30 a.m. in two seconds, the first officer mentioned, quote, max brakes, end quote, during the before landing checklist. The captain replied, quote, max brakes will be fine, end quote. 
to which the first officer returned with, quote, if they work, end quote. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> so Would it's, you like to run that by me again? Notoriously, when you set max brakes on most airplanes, it's going to apply a lot of brakes, but it may not always be as much as you wish it was. That's just kind of a known thing with most airplanes. What? I mean, think about it. It's a pressure-driven system, right? So you're relying on an automated system to apply as much pressure as possible, basically, based on a calculation, and they're hoping that it's enough for what they want. His intention behind that statement is more not that thinking that the the auto brakes won't work at all, but if it applies enough. So otherwise, they'll just revert to tow brakes because that's a very manual system. Okay. I still don't like it. I love how we're just okay with this. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's kind of normal. I just said, I still don't like it. Yeah. But okay. I mean, we as an industry in 1997 slash today. Mm Mm-hmm. 1.30 a.m. and 34 seconds, the captain stated, quote, landing gear down in four green, end quote, and then called for flaps to be set to 50 degrees. So four green. I know that was a weird statement, but it's usually three green, three green. But the MD-11 has a center landing gear under the main tank, under the center of the fuselage, which is strange. So it has one on the nose, one on each wing, and then it has one dead center between those two on the wing, too. So Got there's it. four. So and four. They want four green. So they he was asking for landing gear to be down and flaps to be set to 50 degrees, which 50 degrees is a lot. We're talking about these older airplanes and older airplanes tended to have a lot more flap degrees than we are used to today. Like max is usually like 30, maybe 45. Yeah. On most airplanes, like 737, 757s, 320s, things like that. But this being an MD-11 and therefore uh, sibling to the DC-10, had these insane amount of flap settings. 50 degrees is a lot. 11 seconds later, the captain disengaged the autopilot at 1,200 feet. While the flight controls were hand-flown, the autothrottle remained engaged, as per usual with MD-11 flight procedures, both by the company and by McDonnell Douglas slash Boeing. The flight followed the glide slope normally to the runway. The altitude callouts happened normally by the central oral warning system, or CAUSE, which is... Yes, it's the automated system that tells you it's tied usually to like the GPWS mm-hmm. on a lot of newer airplanes, but also the cause just gives them these calls out, these call outs automatically. Based on the radio altimeter. Right, based on the radio altimeter. So rather than the first officer having to make the call outs, although the first officer is usually ready to do it, or the pilot monitoring is usually ready to do it in case the cause doesn't work, but it's automated. And most airplanes are automated these days. It called out 1,000 feet and then 500 feet. At 1.32 a.m. and three seconds, the cause made the minimums call out, which is at about 200 feet. So then the crew has to decide, are we landing or not? Visibility was good. No reason not to, so they continued. Six seconds later, the first officer stated, quote, breaks on max, end quote. The cause then called out 100, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. The aircraft crossed the threshold at 158 knots. 1.32 a.m. and 18.75 seconds. The aircraft touched down on the runway. Half a second later, the captain made an expletive. Uh, uh uh-oh. He said something like, fuck, right? Yeah, something like, fuck, damn. There we go. You're just making my editing. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Now there's a bunch of bleeps. I did that to me, too. (laughs) Yeah. The engines briefly increased in RPM before spooling back down. 1.32 a.m. and 21.62 seconds. A huge thump could be heard as the aircraft made a second touchdown. Did it bounce? It bounced, this time touching hard with the right main landing gear. The crew collectively made a series of expletives. <laughs> as the aircraft Insert beeps from yes, before. Yes. As the aircraft's right main landing gear collapsed. Uh-oh. And the weight of what? the 
and the weight of the aircraft fell onto the right engine <laughs> and wing, which separated from the fuselage, and the aircraft rolled upside down in flames. Hold on. Hold on. We went from zero to a hundred real, real fast. That happened real fast. Yes. Okay. I don't understand. Neither did they. Exactly. Why that happened. Don't worry. We got a lot to talk about, but like, hold on. I'm... I would like to briefly remind you that you have seen this Air Disasters episode. I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Several years ago. It's in season eight. Oh, several years ago. Yeah, it's okay. It's Dude, okay. I don't remember. Once we talk about this, you'll this whole everything related to this. It will probably jog a memory. But anyways, the aircraft slid to a stop 5,126 feet past the threshold. So where they had crossed for landing, they were still technically within the runway length. However, it had, of course, rolled to the right and therefore slid to the right. Yikes. 580 feet to the right of the runway center line in the grass. The aircraft burned for a period of time while the airport fire and rescue teams attended to the fire and assisted the five on board in escaping the inverted fuselage. All five escaped with only minor injuries. Well, that was that's good. Yes, nobody on the ground was hurt. The five got out. Still pretty disastrous when you see an airplane in massive... Flipped over of, in fire? Ball of flames as it rolls over, loses a wing. The whole fuselage was burned by the time the accident had, you know, the airplane had come to a stop and fire and rescue had attended to it and put the fires out. The whole thing was burned. Not burned to the ground. There was actually, there's actually plenty of pictures of the fuselage still relatively intact, but black. Oh, so just burned. Yes, just burned. Just charred. Yep. Well done. Yes. Obviously, this was in the middle of the night, so oh. it was dark. Yeah. Because it was 1 a.m., 1.30 oh, a.m. you. Yeah. Cargo ops, remember? Yes. <laughs> still you. <laughs> yeah, cargo ops. It's, it's, they happen at night. So. Uh, what happened? That's what we were about to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you see, what, what do you, what, what happened? happened was. So that's all I've got. Your turn. Okay. Yes, I know. It went from zero to 100 real quick. And that's kind of how everybody felt about it. Because they bounced and then the gear collapsed and then everything hit the fan. Yes. Which I get to describe a like two second period several times over. Oh, okay. I don't understand why they bounced. We'll talk about it. I'm is... really surprised I've... you don't remember this. I feel like they might have been going too fast, but... I'm glad you caught something with that, but we'll talk about it. I was going to say 153 knots is a little fast. 158 knots. A little fast for landing. So I'm glad you caught that. I was Let's just go over that now. That is a correct landing speed for the MD-11. It actually is. Is it because of the way the engines are or something? No. No, but you're on to something. Let's talk about it. That, well, no. Okay. So actually, that's a good, a good <laughs> point. I want you to put a pin in it or a needle since you're cross-stitching. Yes. Okay. That was funny. Um, and, and we'll come back to that when I talk about what's, what's the key word here? When I say underlying factor. Okay. It's a ways down. Great. Okay. okay this investigation was performed by the NTSB. Been a while since we could do that. Good Lord. Okay. Both black boxes were found and the data was successfully retrieved with would, good quality i would hope so well i don't yes. know the plane was in flames so yeah but you know i have i have yeah, pictures usually they can at least get them out there are pictures in, in flames the upside down there it are was, it was a bad time there are in fact pictures in the report oh i opened my phone so i could find the air disasters uh mock-up and then i got distracted by sudoku that's there's what happened the, there's the plane adhd there's the flames yeah which yeah a lot of flames of course um here is the charred remains from a distance 
Yeah. Which doesn't look very good, but actually it was relatively more intact than some burned airplanes I have seen. Like a certain A350 lately? Yeah. Dang. Yes. This is more intact than that. Okay. Okay. It's coming in. Coming in. Coming in. Ooh. ooh. Oh, something happened right before landing. So let's talk about it. There was like some wind or something. Okay, while reviewing aircraft records, a disturbing trend was discovered. This was not the first hard landing. Hey! Hey! I keep forgetting we have a button for that. <laughs> that this exact aircraft had had. In January of 1994, it sustained damage to the belly of the fuselage during a bounced landing <clears throat> at Memphis, where FedEx is based. Also bounced. Ten months later in November, it sustained damage once again during a tail strike bounce at Anchorage. The repairs for the Anchorage incident were performed immediately... Whereas the permanent repairs for the Memphis bounce weren't completed until its next sea check in August of 1995. That's horrible. Yeah. I'm going to put that one off. Like a year and a half. Yeah. Well, it still flew. That's that's the thought that they had. It still flies. <laughs> <laughs> it's within it's that, tolerance. Do you know how many times that has resulted in a crash? That Oh, it still flies. I'm sure there was a tolerance, and I'm sure it was within that because it safely flew. It I says realize. it didn't just, just put a doubler plate on it. <laughs> yeah. like, no, well, it's fine. So it said permanent repair, so I'm assuming they did put a doubler plate on it. They might have. Anyway. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone. That's exactly what a doubler plate is. <laughs> yeah. Upon learning this... Uh, tendency. Investigators became concerned that the pre-existing damage or fatigue could cause the failure of the right wing experience during this accident. Detailed inspections were performed after each of these incidents as well as during subsequent maintenance and there was no recorded damage to the main landing gear, gear attach points, or wing structure. The NTSB metallurgical staff examined the fracture surfaces after the Newark accident and found no pre-existing structural damage or fatigue cracking. Further analysis proved that the energy transmitted to the right main landing gear was sufficient to break a brand new MD-11 wing. So it was determined that the wing damage could be attributed to this accident alone. So they hit that hard. That's what that means. So now that we know that, let's discuss the approach and landing. They were configured for approach with flaps set at 50 degrees. The captain disconnected the autopilot at 1,200 feet, but left the autothrottles engaged. Perfectly great. Fine. Normal. We're good. The aircraft maintained an approach speed of 158 knots, which was consistent with their target approach speed specified by FedEx, which was VREF plus 5 knots, which in this case was 157 knots. And they were descending steadily at 800 feet per minute on the glide slope with a nose pitch of 3 degrees. Mm -hmm. All data from the FDR as well as statements from the flight crew confirmed that all was routine until just prior to touchdown. As such, the approach was stabilized and the crew was correct to continue the approach from this point. Yep. The crew initiated their flare, which is where the nose is pitched up during landing. You'll notice it when you're I don't know, landing. Mm -hmm. When you're like, hey, I don't want this to be a hard landing. Flare, 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 flare. And you'll hear Nick when you're flying with him. Oh, please flare. Flare, 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 flare. <laughs> please, God, flare. Because I can tell when we're going to have a, a harder hit within the last few seconds when it doesn't feel like the rest, you know, the, the descent is arrested. You know, you just you just kind of keep what dropping. What flight were we on that that captain made a joke about that? Mm -hmm. About flaring? Yeah. I have no idea. And about the hard landings, because you wanted yeah. her oh. I a sweatshirt, sweatshirt. I don't know. Nick took 76 flights last year, so. I don't, I don't. I'm not going to remember. It was remember. one of the ones you were on with me. Yes. <laughs> I know. We, I think we were landing back in Denver. Brilliant. I think. I think it was one of the day trips. Maybe it was coming back from St. Louis. Oh, uh, maybe it was. I think you're right. Regardless. Which is funny, because the other hard landing we have was going to St. Louis. St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> so the crew initiated their flare uh, about 37 feet above the ground and decreased the engine thrust. Which Sorry. does not seem abnormal to me. 
no. of that. One and a half seconds later, they were pitched up five degrees and were 17 feet above ground level, or AGO. And this was consistent with the FedEx MD-11 manual, which dictates flaring by two and a half degrees when 30 to 40 feet radio altitude. The flare was normal and not a factor in the accident. Yeah. We don't have that much longer till touchdown. Nope. Nope. This is where it gets weird. Yes, it is. Two seconds before touchdown, the flight data recorder recorded the elevator changing from 12 degrees nose up to near zero degrees, and the aircraft's pitch decreased slightly in response. One second before touchdown, the elevator changed again to a nose up deflection of 26 degrees, and the thrust lever was increased to almost takeoff thrust, followed by a small right wing down input. Okay, I also wanted to talk about that, right? Because Mm -hmm. from the story... Mm -hmm. It said that there was some sort of increase in thrust, which I don't yes. understand because they're landing. Uh, so what? This is actually normal for an MD-11. We'll talk about this a little I bit more feel in like depth. I, I feel like in a previous episode of, you know, over 200, we have mm-hmm. talked about this. Do I remember? No. It's okay. We've, we've got a lot to cover with this because it's... Put a needle in it. And when I say underlying factor, we'll come back to it. Yes. All of this happened when they were seven feet above the ground. Vertical speed at touchdown was 7.6 feet per second, and the vertical acceleration peaked at 1.67 Js. Ooh. Ouch. a little bit much. A little bit? Upon touchdown, the captain performed a strong nose-down input, but the aircraft began to lift off the runway because of the landing gear strut and tire compression loads, as well as the still-increasing pitch, thrust, and airspeed. Also, the spoilers didn't deploy. Oh, that's a problem. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Well, I mean, typically when you bounce, because it's so quick... You didn't actually set down, but there's another mechanism built into the MD-11 that we will get to. Yeah. Okay. The bounce led to an airtime of two seconds, during which time the elevator remained in nose down, followed by a large and rapid nose up elevator input, nose left rudder, and right wing down inputs. Three quarters of a second before a second touchdown, the aircraft reached five feet above ground level, two degrees nose up with the elevators in a nose down configuration, but moving toward nose up. Given this configuration, investigators deem this is the point of no return where there was nothing the crew could have done to prevent the accident. Okay. So it happened really, there was a lot of really big inputs happening right here to change the attitude of the airplane, but it was already too late. The second touchdown occurred at nine and a half degrees right wing down roll angle and a pitch of 0.7 degrees nose down. So your nose should not be pointing down when you're landing. No, you no. don't want to hit nose first, typically. It's a very slight nose down, yeah, but you should have, there should be flare. So it's basically landing it's flat. It's not looking good. Right. right. It's basically landing flat, which in a bounce is never good because that will cause oscillations and damage. Yep. The boing, bird, the boing, r- boing, yep. boing. At that point, you should just go boing, bye. Yeah. Yeah. So the, remember that for next episode. that's foreshadowing way in advance i think that's a new record for us the vertical speed of the right main landing gear was 13.5 feet per second and the right wing failed an impact well yeah investigators determined that the correct actions through this landing should have had the captain keeping the elevators in a nose up configuration to continue the flare did you i know you talked about the fact that they determined that the wing separated by the force but did you talk about how much force no Three and a half times the capabilities of the wing. <laughs> That's how hard they hit. Ouch. They hit with three and a half times what that airplane was capable of withstanding. Ouch. By bringing the elevator near neutral, he had des- destabilized the flare and created a greater sink rate. Think rate. Think rate. Think rate. Think rate. All subsequent actions were a reaction to the sink rate to prevent a hard landing. And these. Wait, wait, wait. 
and these late and large actions couldn't have achieved the desired effect. Investigators determined that there were no failures in the control surfaces themselves and that they were only responding to the control inputs. Yeah, so a uh, pilot did something wrong, yeah? These inputs were consistent with a classic pilot-induced oscillation, or PIO. Okay, did, so did one of them just freak out? And the captain. Like, the captain. Captain freaked out. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Started, like, over-controlling the airplane, yes. yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Typical. <sighs> So, how did the FedEx MD-11 procedure describe what to do? The investigators reviewed the landing guidance and found only one technique that promotes a nose-down elevator between flare and touchdown. This quote-unquote advanced technique for landing recommends that elevator back pressure be released 10 feet before touchdown to achieve a one-degree decrease in pitch. What the captain did was in excess of that, and he did so prior to the 10-feet callout, so investigators determined he was not attempting this advanced landing technique. The two flight crew testified that they felt the sink rate increase shortly before touchdown and that these were quote-unquote seat-of-the-pants feelings and not observations on the instruments. And investigators determined that this feeling was the result of the decreased G's and increased pitch-down rate. With one second left before touchdown, investigators determined that the captain had three choices. One, accept the sink rate and hard landing. Two, attempt to salvage the landing with thrust and pitch adjustments. Or three, go around. Mm-hmm. I choose that he should have done number three. I also suggest three. Investigators also thought he should have done number three. <laughs> he chose option two. Yeah. Yeah. When in doubt, go around. This is one of the instances where they definitely could have. Yeah. The flight manual recommends maintaining constant pitch in the last 10 feet of altitude, but this assumed a stabilized approach and flare, which was not the case. FedEx did have a high sink rate and bounce recovery training, which recommended establishing a seven and a half degree pitch and arresting the sink rate with thrust and to re-land after the bounce. This is foreshadowing that that's a terrible idea. Please refer to the next episode. <laughs> but this training also cautioned against quickly adding up elevator near the ground because it can lead to an increased pitch rate at touchdown, increased downward vertical speed on the landing gear, a hard landing, and a tail strike. Investigators actually took this training. They sat in the classroom and took the training to confirm that it lined up with what the airline reported was taught, and they confirmed that the captain's actions were inconsistent with the training. Well... Did the captain have a good training history? Uh, I'm guessing no. Investigators found that he had received an unsatisfactory evaluation for his upgrade proficiency check ride on October 29th, 1996. But other than that, he had a good record of no accident, incident, or enforcement action. In the 10 months since the failed check ride, the captain had passed a proficiency check and two line checks. Investigators determined that there was no skill deficiencies that attributed to the accident. Really? Yeah. Because, uh... I beg to differ. But. but this whole investigation also went into an underlying factor that had proven dangerous before, and that was the MD-11 handling characteristics. Okay, so remember how this aircraft had two previous hard landings? Yeah. The captain also st- described in his experience with MD-11s that they had a tendency to pitch up during landing, and he had come to expect it. Investigators prefaced this section of the analysis with the fact that though the MD-11's tendency to pitch up at ground spoiler deployment did not contribute to the accident, a reduction or elimination of this tendency would simplify the landing technique and prevent future accidents. So, why does it have this tendency? Well, the MD-11 is a longer version of the DC-10. Mm-hmm. And Boeing, in its infinite wisdom. <laughs> it was McDonnell Douglas when they designed it. Whatever. Yeah. The manufacturer, in its infinite wisdom decided to narrow its tail horizontally to reduce the drag from the tail. It had a smaller tail than the DC-10. That's just stupid. Bigger airplane, smaller tail. So, it should be bigger tail. You would think, but the DC-10 did have a really large tail, to be fair. Very large for the size of aircraft it was. So, because it had a smaller tail, that is why they had to approach 
faster. Notoriously, the MD-11 had to approach faster to maintain the airspeed. Stability. The airspeed over the tail for stability's sake. So that is why they had a landing speed of 158 knots. One of the highest. Whatever. One of the highest in modern aviation. So the MD-11 had to approach faster, and the smaller tail also was attributed to the reason for its pitch-up when spoilers deploy. Yep. And so that is why the captain had the inkling to put the nose down, even though that is not what you should do at that phase of flight. You should wait until both main landing gear have touched down before lowering the nose, and he had begun doing so too early. Boeing had developed the FCC 908 software package to alter the handling of MD-11s during landing by decreasing the pitch sensitivity using the pitch rate damper. Do I know what most of that means? Not really. So what that is, though, is a computer that augments the inputs on the flight controls, because this is a fly-by-wire aircraft. It augments the inputs that are done on the flight controls, especially during landing sequence, and inputs safer flight inputs this is this is a <laughs> for the aircraft's capabilities because it knows what the safer. air well it knows what the aircraft is capable of and not capable of based on what they told it to do <laughs> this all sounds very reminiscent of the 737 max just a little bit however most fly-by-wire have these kinds of things i mean all airbuses yes, have this kind this of thing one technically works this helps reduce the pitch-up tendency of the md-11 but it's only as good at protecting the airplane as its programming. And if it's installed. Oh, was it not installed? The goal of the software to w- was to have the handling of the MD-11 match the DC-10 and prevent tail strikes, but this software was not required by the FAA at the time of the report. Oh, my God. We'll talk about that later on. I don't know if it was installed on the accident we'll aircraft. We'll talk about that later on. My but guess is no. This section of the report wasn't so much about this accident in particular, but it was the fact that they found that the MD-11 has these problems and they wanted to go into depth they on it. To, so yeah, be like, hey, this is clearly a problem. We'll you talk, should probably fix that. We'll talk about it later on. It was installed. However, we'll talk about it later on because they figured out that it's only as good as it's programming. And in other words, also, they figured out there was something else they should have programmed into it. You might note that there's a second episode to this series. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyways. Also analyzed was the MD-11 ground spoiler knockdown feature, which yes. sounds like a boxing move. <laughs> I know, it really does. <laughs> pow <laughs> <laughs> This feature prevented the spoilers from deploying when the throttle resolver angle, or the throttle, exceeded 44 degrees or just above flight idle. And this was done to prevent spoiler deployment or to retract spoilers during go-arounds. The board was concerned that this threshold was too low. Because if you're coming in just like your your engines are a little hot, like just a little above idle, mm-hmm. your spoilers won't deploy. Yeah. Yikes. Yes. However, they designed it this way because of the fact that the airplane notoriously pitched up Yes. when the spoilers deployed because the wing is so far aft on the fuselage. So they were concerned that the lack of spoilers in this case may have exacerbated the pitch tendencies and contributed to the bounce. I also wanted to say... Like, didn't they need all stopping power anyway? Yes. But so if the spoilers didn't deploy, wouldn't that be a problem? Well, the spoilers work, though. Yes. The only reason that they didn't deploy is because they had increased throttle to increase wind speed over the tail so that the nose would drop. There's so many levels of things going on in that one little sentence. But point is because they had manually increased the thrust. Yes. The spoilers didn't deploy. Right. However... Talk about it per MD 11s per McDonnell Douglas and Boeing's guidance. You're actually supposed to increase the thrust during touchdown. Anyways, 
That's a whole other thing. We'll Again, talk about. because the tail that's, is tiny. That's part of the actual the things that changed after this. But I'm going to say yes, asterisk, because big asterisk, because there's something else happening here that was inadvertent. I, I only asked that because I, and by the way, I realized this did not play into the accident at all because it wouldn't have mattered because they bounced and they crashed mm-hmm. due to said bounce and over controlling the airplane. But you're onto something but, big. Yeah, because we talked about right beforehand, right, that they needed all stopping power because they didn't have a thrust right. reverser. You're onto something. Which is important, right? And so that's why I made the comment of, yes. wouldn't it be important that the spoilers do deploy if they need to yes, stop? Yes, asterisk, <laughs> because there was a mistake that we haven't talked about yet. Oh, okay. So the lack of spoilers was not technically causal to this accident as the crew could right. have counteracted it. But the investigators note that modifying the spoiler deployment system to allow greater throttle movement would help prevent and minimize bounces. So instead of having that cut off at 44 degrees, make it higher. Mm-hmm. So hold on. My brain's trying to, to process. So due to their lack of drag from the spoilers, that's why they bounced. Not part necessarily, but that could have been part of it. Okay. Or like in general, would it yes. make them bounce? Not, Not it, particularly in this accident. It wouldn't but. cause a bounce, but it... Contributed to the exacerbation of said bounce. Okay. All right. Okay. Because there was no downforce on the landing gear. Right. And basically, they think it's a little ridiculous that the cutoff is 44 degrees when if you're doing a go around, which was the point of this system so that the spoilers weren't deployed during a go around, mm-hmm. you're going to full. Yeah. Right. You're going to toga power. That's yes. going to be beyond 44 yes. degrees. We should increase that limit. Yeah. Okay. All it right. usually takes a second or so for the spoilers to deploy anyways, and they were on the ground for less than that. So. Okay. That's all I have. Okay. Let's talk about the really big mistake before we go to break. And it's something that I left out of the story. The whole reason, and it's what you brought up, and this is the big asterisk, the whole reason that they wanted to land as early as possible was because they thought they didn't have the runway length needed with the one Just reverser stop. out, right? Okay. Originally, with medium auto brake usage, they had calculated on the airport laptop computer used for landing calculations in Anchorage, provided by the company for this purpose. They had calculated a distance. Let me see. I can actually read exactly what it is. Based on the touchdown area, the distance required for landing... And the reverser out with medium auto brake, they had calculated that would have left them with 780 feet of runway remaining. So less than a thousand feet of runway remaining. They weren't very, they weren't very comfortable with that. So they instead decided to go with max braking, which would only require 5,030 feet if they touched down at the normal touchdown point, which would have left them with 1,830 feet of remaining runway, which to me was like, okay, at that point, you don't have to force a landing. The captain did. So there's mistake one, right? 1,830 feet is still 1,830 feet. It's almost 2,000 feet they would have had remaining, which is quite a bit. So the captain chose to force a landing, which is why they bounced, because he was so worried about the landing distance. Problem number one, even though they had 1,830 feet that they had agreed on, as extra space and would have been okay if they had floated just a little bit. Right. But problem number two, their calculations were incorrect. Oh no. So he forced a landing that didn't need to be forced. The airplane had plenty of stopping power to leave plenty of runway distance remaining well over 2000 feet with max auto braking, about a thousand feet, a little over a thousand feet with medium. 
Plenty of distance. Dude. Even if they had floated for a little bit. So he forced a landing, and they put this pretty heavily on the captain. We'll get into this, but... Uh, rightfully so. The, the captain actually, again, he had a pretty good record and was found to be a pretty good pilot. He will call this a pretty big lapse in judgment, which can happen to anybody. This was human error yes. at its finest, but they do heavily state that it was the captain's fault. We'll do all that in the second half, but that was the biggest mistake made overall. The whole thing was caused... Because, yes, the MD-11 has some very big design quirks, which did not help the MD-11 throughout its lifespan, still to this day. But but this accident actually occurred and was exacerbated by a forced landing by the captain because he was worried about landing distance. So continuation bias. Yeah. He really wanted to put that airplane on the ground. And after they bounced, they could have gone around. Yeah, they could have. So... There's a lot of factors there, but unfortunately, most of them fall on the captain. Most of the mistakes actually fall on the captain. The airplane was landable, and they could have gone around, and it just, the, the decision was poor. And the calculations, the calculations were done by the first officer originally. However, then they did another calculation on the computer in the cockpit, and both were wrong. So. It, oh, man. That's bad. <laughs> That's yeah. real bad. Yeah. So they were trying to force a landing where one wasn't required. But also, if you, both calculations incorrect, being that that's what they thought. Yep. If you're super uncomfortable with that, mm -hmm. then don't go to that airport. So, yeah, they needed to get to Newark. They had the distance required. And again, to me, 1,830 feet, still a pretty good margin. Yeah. Even if he had floated for a little bit, they would have had plenty of runway distance remaining to make that landing. Why force it after it bounced? But- Again, a two-second period, human error. We'll just chalk this whole thing up to bad judgment, right? Let's take a break. We'll do the second half. Okay, we're back. So, like I said, we've got a bit to talk about here in terms of the mistakes that were made, as well as the design flaws. And the findings were pretty big, and this accident was actually pretty big in trying to change the industry. Now, another big asterisk. We have another episode after this one that follows on. So, not everything was fixed here. But they did make some pretty important changes. I also, to be fair, we haven't recorded the next episode yet, obviously. Yeah. But how soon after this happened did that? Not that soon. So this over a decade. came out. Oh, that's not good. The next accident was over a decade later. <laughs> I was going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but never mind. No. <laughs> they don't no deserve it. There's no benefit of the doubt now. All right. Let's do some findings. There are actually... 27 findings, which is quite a bit, and I'm not doing 27, but I'm actually doing quite a few because I thought they were pretty pertinent, but most of them are pretty short. They found that there was no pre-existing damage or degradation to the airplane structure systems or components that contributed to this accident. Again, having dealt with a couple of <clears throat> hard landings. The, hey. the, <laughs> that was my facepalm, just to be abundantly clear. Yes. They were worried that the airplane may have some structural issues that led to the wing separating. It turns out that wasn't the case. We'll talk about that in a minute. They found that the airplane's approach before the landing flare was stabilized. So the approach was actually very normal all the way up until flare. They found that the captain was concerned about the airplane's touchdown location on runway 22 right and intended to take measures during the landing to achieve an early touchdown and minimize the length of the rollout on the runway after touchdown. Again, something he didn't need to do because of a miscalculation and continuation bias. Just saying. A little too concerned about something that wasn't ultimately an issue and you're fixating on something negative. Right. 
They found that the captain's nose-down elevator input, beginning at 17 feet radio altitude, was not consistent with the Federal Express guidance for landing the MD-11. Just don't do that. Because you're not supposed to. Right. They found that the captain's nose-down elevator input at 17 feet radio altitude, two seconds before the first touchdown, was consistent with an attempt to control the point of touchdown, given his concerns about the runway length. Again, continuation bias. That's what that is. That statement is continuation bias. They found that the captain made a nearly full nose-up elevator input and a large throttle increase to compensate for the increased sink rate caused by his previous nose-down input. And that was, you know, like a second before they touched down? Yeah. So that was bad. Well, it wasn't good. Nope. They found that the captain's full nose-down elevator control input at the time of the first touchdown was consistent with his continued concern to avoid a long landing and his desire to avoid a tail strike. Again, continuation bias. He was trying to force the nose down and force the landing. They found that the captain's over-control of the elevator during the landing and his failure to execute a go-around from a destabilized flare were causal to the accident. How many times can I mention the captain being, Uh unfortunately, the one caused this? And unfortunately, this had repercussions we'll talk about at the end. They found that the captain's control inputs during the flare and bounce were not consistent with landing procedures and techniques outlined in the Federal Express MD-11 pilot training procedures, McDonnell Douglas flight crew operating manual, or with Federal Express's MD-11 tail strike awareness and high sink rate and bounce recovery training, all of which were really important because the MD-11 was really prone to that. Really prone to that. They found that the captain had no previously documented skill deficiencies that contributed to this accident, nothing that was of note. They tried to give him some benefit of the doubt and say, like, look, this was poor judgment right here, right now in this accident because it was a few split seconds of just really poor decision making. But overall, this captain had not had deficiencies in the past. Like, he was a good pilot, just not in this moment, unfortunately. And the MD-11 was not helpful to his bad decision making because it was not forgiving. They found that the air carrier pilot's performance would be improved by additional guidance and training in landing techniques. So while they placed the blame on the mistakes made by the captain, they believed the company should have done more training to fix the problem, which yes, I don't disagree. However, I wouldn't put it entirely on the carrier either, which they don't. We'll talk about just a second. A lot of it has to do with the design of the MD-11. Which is DC, McDonnell Douglas, and Boeing's fault. Yes, yes. We found that the flight crew's calculation error and determining the runway length required for landing influenced the captain's subsequent actions during final approach and landing by creating a sense of urgency to touch down early and initiate maximum braking immediately. Again, forced continuation bias by something that just wasn't actually an issue. Right. They had plenty of runway length, and they just didn't know it because they miscalculated. That miscalculation on its own, though, shouldn't have caused the accident. Even if they had miscalculated with the calculations that they had done, to me, that was plenty of distance to allow for a safe landing. Normal, safe landing. Yeah. But he was so fixated on getting the airplane on the ground early that he forced a landing and made it very dangerous because the MD-11 couldn't withstand that. They found that some flight crew members may lack proficiency in the operation of airport performance laptop computers or similar airplane performance computing devices, and confusion about calculated landing distances may result in potentially hazardous miscalculations of available runway distance after touchdown. Miscalculation again. Yeah. Why it happened? Well, their use of the computer and calculation computers, landing distance calculations done by computers, were inaccurate, which is potentially very dangerous. They found that the MD-11's tendency to pitch up at ground spoiler deployment did not contribute to the accident because they didn't deploy on an initial touchdown. 
They found that the handling changes incorporated in the MD-11 Flight Control Computer 908 software upgrade will provide valuable improvements in safety during MD-11 landings. So after the accident, they did some changes to the computer 908 for the MD-11, which, again, augments the control inputs. These changes that they're making, the updates that they were making to this flight computer, were going to help prevent situations like this. To tack on to that, the next finding... They found that with the information that is currently available from the flight data recorder, it may be impossible to distinguish the control inputs of the MD-11 Flight Control Computer 908 Longitudinal Stability Augmentation System from the pilot's control inputs. On the flight data recorder, they could not determine... If it was the airplane or the pilot. Or if, yeah, it was the airplane or the pilot doing the inputs, which may or may not be foreshadowing. Woohoo! Uh-oh. That means it was the airplane. So... Unless the captain was flying the next one recovering, too. That would be no. horrible. But, yeah, no. No. Probably the aircraft. Because, and I guess I'll give this away now, they fired him. Oh. I was going to ask about that, if he still had his job. They fired him, and the union tried to fight to get him his job back. Because, again, bad decision-making in one moment caused the accident. However, he did not have big deficiencies, and they found that it had to primarily do with the design of the airplane that... It was so catastrophic. His bad judgment was so catastrophic. A lot of other airplanes in situations like this where maybe misjudged flare wouldn't necessarily, even a bounce, wouldn't necessarily end in complete disaster like this. Right. But the MD-11's design was ultimately the real reason that his misjudgment and his bad, his poor actions in the moment caused this accident. The snowball, the domino, the, the many things that take effect to actually cause this accident. They found that the energy transmitted into the right main landing gear during the second touchdown was 3.2 times greater. So sorry, not three and a half, but 3.2 times greater than the MD-11's maximum certificated landing energy and was sufficient to fully compress or bottom out the right main landing gear strut and cause structural failure of the right wing rear spar. They hit really friggin' hard. Right. Yeah, no kidding. They also found, however, that the landing gear was overcomplicated and would have a tendency to collapse when too much force was placed on it compared to other aircraft. Which is not great, because that's kind of the point of a landing gear. Yes. They found that the structural failure of the right wing rear spar resulted in the rupture of the right wing fuel tank and fire. Fire! 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 I found that the risks to firefighters and the surrounding community were minimized substantially because the incident commander assumed that hazardous materials were on board and acted accordingly. This was really interesting to me. The incident commander in charge of firefighting yeah. that arrived on scene yeah. handled the situation assuming that hazardous materials were on board and not knowing whether or not they were. Not a bad thing to do when you're dealing with a cargo yeah, airplane. Yeah, it's a good practice. Yes. So they found yes. that the Newark accident demonstrates that air carriers transporting hazardous materials continue to need a means to quickly retrieve and provide consolidated specific information to emergency responders about the identity of all hazardous materials on an airplane. Value jet, cough, cough. Value yes. jet. Yes. So hazardous materials and aircraft for a long time, it's not that we didn't necessarily know they were there, but in an accident, there were a lot of situations where... It's very important. Yeah. And incident command and firefighters just wouldn't know how to handle that not knowing what was on board. This incident commander did the right thing, they found, by just treating it as if hazardous materials were on board. They were like, hey, 
Don't know. Right. But just in case. Just in case. They have specific chemicals they use to put out fires. They have specific procedures about how they approach the aircraft. They have specific procedures about how they rescue people. It really affects how this was handled. And that was good because, yes, there were hazardous materials on the airplane. As it turns out. And they didn't specify what, but it was important. And it was found that that, that, that information being immediately available would be really helpful in other accidents where maybe they don't assume and they just react, right? So, but there's a lot of procedures that have to happen right away when an airplane accident occurs. So, that's it for the findings. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's over-control of the airplane during the landing and his failure to execute a go-around from a destabilized flare. Contributing to the accident was the captain's concern with touching down early to ensure adequate stopping distance. Could they have put any less blame on the captain? Which, again, not to find at fault. The NTSB's job is not to place blame. It's to prevent future accidents. Right. Which didn't happen. So, it's unfortunate. But, captain was fired. Let's talk about some recommendations, some things they recommended, because a lot needed to change after this accident anyways, knowing what they know after the accident about the MD-11 and about training and about denuation bias. They recommend to convene a joint government industry task force composed at a minimum of representatives of manufacturers, operators, pilot labor organizations, and the FAA to develop within one year a pilot training tool to do the following. Include information about factors that can contribute to structural failures involving the landing gear, wings, and fuselage, such as design sink rate limits, roll angle limits, control inputs roll rate, pitch rate, single gear landings, the effect of decreased lift, and structural loading sequences of bottoming landing gear struts and tires. All of that, I know that's a lot talking there. There's another point here, but they're saying study all of this, figure out what the limits of these aircraft are with all of those different variables, landing on one landing gear, the different structural limits of each piece, and the different sink rates, roll rates, things like that at landing. Which I feel to like... To determine is what is safer. They should already know that. And they know a lot of those things, but the reason they wanted this was for training purposes and to redesign or reprogram these computers, these augmented computers, to allow for a safer landing situation. It won't allow the inputs of the pilot to override the limits of the aircraft structurally during a landing sequence. Which is all well and good, but... Yes. So again, it's only as good as its programming, and that's basically what they're getting at. And the pilot's inputs are only going to be as good as their training. Second point, provide a syllabus of simulator training on the execution of stabilized approaches to the landing flare, the identification of unstabilized landing flares, and recovery from these situations, including proper high sink rate recovery techniques during flare to landing, techniques for avoiding and recovering from over-control in pitch before touchdown, and techniques for avoiding over-control in premature derotation during a bounced landing, and promote an orientation toward a proactive go-around. When you bounce, because you over-controlled the airplane, you suddenly lost the stabilized landing go-around. Right. Yep. It should be that fast, that reaction. Yeah. Rather than trying to force again into a bounce, which again was only two seconds, don't get me wrong. That's a very short period of time to have to think. But after you bounce the first time, immediately it should be pitch back, throttle up. Yeah, because we talked about oscillations. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But you can put yourself into a series of bounces that you can't yes. get out of. Correct. And then you do damage like this. So it happens a lot with GA aircraft. Yes, it does. This, though, targets more the flare to landing 
realizing that, okay, you had a nice stabilized approach all the way until flare and then recognizing when something is wrong, wrong. with the flare yeah. at that moment, making the decision to go around. Even right. if you're mm-hmm. going to touch, you've made that decision by the time you touch. That way you don't end up in a bounce situation. Right. So it's forcing that decision making to happen earlier and training it, recognizing it and training it. You recommended requiring principal operations inspectors assigned to Part 121 carriers that use auxiliary performance computers to review and ensure the adequacy of training and procedures regarding the use of this equipment, the interpretation of the data generated, including landing distance data. Understanding how the landing distance data and calculations are used and trained, mm-hmm. but they want specifically inspectors of 121 operators to make sure that that is being done correctly by the carrier. Right. Because the calculation being incorrect could have been fixed and and not if been they an had issue. known that it wouldn't have mattered if they had he wouldn't have tried so hard right to plant that thing on the ground right and again by the time this accident happened there were already changes to the augmentation computer the computer nine oh eight to prevent things like this accident from happening by over control during flare so this recommendation being the shortest one could not have been more pointed. They recommend requiring the installation within one year of the MD-11 Flight Control Computer 908 software upgrade on all MD-11 airplanes, making sure that the software upgrade was installed on everything within a year. They recommend it. The FAA has to make the airworthiness directive. Yeah, right. And that is still the case today. Yes. So that recommendation had to be followed by the FAA's AD. They recommend requiring on all MD-11s equipped with the Flight Control Computer 908 software the retrofit of digital flight data recorder systems with all additional parameters required to precisely identify and differentiate between pilot and longitudinal stability augmentation systems, or LSAS, elevator control activity, including control column force, inertial reference unit pitch data, LSAS command signals, elevator positions, and automatic ground spoiler command signals. All of that to say they want to be able to differentiate when they look at FDR data, whether it was the pilot that did it or the airplane that did it. And it's pretty incredible that that information wasn't included. Mm -hmm. I did read that this FDR had 250 parameters. Yes, which is quite a bit for an airplane at the time. However, they wanted more. Not enough. Yeah, they wanted more. Aircraft these days can tell you exactly where the input was done. Who, what, when, where, why. Yeah, we're talking many (laughs) thousands of data How many times? When it happened? Yep. Every time airplanes get smarter, we add more data points, right? So, and it gets simpler to track that. Well, because, like, the more data you have, Mm -hmm. the more information you know when an accident like this does happen. Yes. Then you're like, okay. Agreed. You can also add too much information to the mix. So it's a balance, right? And I, I know that people think there's not, you can never have too much information, but at the same time, if you add too much information, sometimes you can overcomplicate the situation yep. and miss something. So, they recommend reviewing and, if appropriate, revise the DC-10 and MD-11 throttle resolver angle driven ground spoiler knockdown feature to ensure that it does not prevent ground spoiler deployment at moderate TRAs that could be associated with sync rate and airspeed corrections during the landing phase. So if there was a sudden change in throttle and control input, that shouldn't prevent the spoilers from being deployed because that could just be a correction to arrest a descent. I don't know whether or not that would have saved the airplane here because, again, they were only on the ground for, I think it was less than a second during the bounce. So the spoilers may have had just a brief moment to deploy, but it may not have been enough to affect the landing, the bounce. Still, they're saying, like, obviously... The signal wasn't there. It still told the spoilers not to deploy. 
Still a problem. Yep. Just not the worst problem. Yep. They recommend requiring DC-10 and MD-11 operators to provide their pilots with information and training regarding the ground spoiler knockdown feature and its effects on landing characteristics and performance. Telling them, hey, be careful with throttle inputs until we fix this (laughs) so that it does allow the spoilers to deploy. But the pilots didn't know all about that, so they weren't trained on it. This one was interesting, and it's bullet-pointed, but I'm going to summarize this one a little bit because they talk quite a bit about a study they want done. And this has more to do with the characteristics, the complete and whole characteristics of large transport category aircraft. MD-11, 777s, 747s, anything of that nature. Anything that is large in size, which I know that like 737s are large, but we're talking like ultra-large. White bodies. Yeah. They wanted a study in participation with NASA to determine all the many variables about the landing characteristics and the structural abilities of aircraft. Not that this isn't done by engineers, but they want to better understand how adverse inputs and adverse flying could affect the characteristics of these airplanes. Right. Prevent them, prevent these things from happening in accidents, these kinds of accidents from happening, basically. With that study piece in mind, they recommend the study should include analysis of DC-10 and MD-11 landing accidents and any other landing incidents and accidents deemed pertinent by NASA. And then they recommend, based on the results of the study recommended in the safety recommendation, such and such, the first one, implemented improved certification criteria for transport category airplanes design that will reduce the incidence of landing accidents. So anything they can do to reduce these landing accidents because they found that this airplane having three hard landings, if you will, throughout its lifetime up until the accident, up to and including the accident, that they should be looking better at how to avoid those situations altogether with these types of aircraft because the MD-11 is so picky. They recommend conducting a study to determine if landing gear vertical loading fusing offers a higher level of safety than when the landing gear is over-designed. If fusing offers a higher level of safety, revise 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 25 to require vertical overloading fusing of landing gear. Redesigning the landing gear to actually be a little bit simpler because the overdesign was theoretically supposed to allow the aircraft to have really high tolerances, but actually caused failures, like in this accident. So they were saying, why not simplify it? Do the, the fusing, which, okay, the vertical fusing, vertical overload fusing specifically. Don't get me wrong, a little above my head, this would be an engineering thing for sure, but has to do with oversimplifying so that when the airplane does get overloaded on the landing gear, it doesn't just immediately collapse yeah. or shear. They recommended requiring manufacturers of 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 23 and Part 25 airplanes and Part 121 operators to revise their hard landing inspection and reporting criteria to account for all factors that can contribute to structural damage, instruct principal maintenance and operations inspectors assigned to Part 121 operators to ensure that these changes have been made to operator maintenance manuals and flight operations quality assurance exceedance monitoring programs. Just making sure that there's a lot higher oversight, essentially, within the industry mm-hmm. of hard landings, period. We had to cover a whole accident about hard landings. Guess for what? Once. I hate you. That's us. Oh, boy. Sorry. Well. I think that's the last time I'll push that. Okay. That's Got it? That's it. Today. Yeah, today, anyways. Again, we not foreshadowing too much. But we might have some things related to this to talk about in the next episode. Just because, maybe. Mayhaps. Because... 
the similarities are astounding. Truly astounding. Anyways, that's it. All right, people. All that right. was FedEx Flight 14. Yes. It was FedEx or FedEx Express. FedEx Express, which is redundant, and I don't like it. Federal Express Express. <laughs> Flight 14. Dang. Yes. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, you should do all the things like uh, giving us money and <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But checking out the Patreon. Yeah. There's a lot of like extra content and stuff on there. We had there, a- There's some good blooper reel from here. Oh, man. January's blooper reel is gold. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that because I'm the one who edited a good portion of the episodes that went into the January blooper reel. Yep. Gold. Quality. Yep. Also, uh, there's like, we had a patron tell us how we had a post episode a while ago because we came back from a trip and they said it was very entertaining. Yes, we do that. Which the trip was actually very entertaining. Yes. So, glad when, to hear that the story about the trip was very entertaining. When we do go on trips, we try to tell the stories and that's both for the sake of like, someday I really want to listen to those and- Remember what really, happened? I think it'll be really nostalgic to listen to that and be really entertaining on its own. But I also think it's really entertaining to just talk about these things because we can provide because it's of never a normal trip with us. Never. It is never normal. What's We're going to go on another adventure in a month. Oh so. God, let's see how well that goes down. Mm-hmm. Anyway, check out the newsletter. Check out the merch yep. page. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for being people that listen. Share us with your friends and family. Yeah. So that we can get more listeners so we can keep doing this. Yeah. Yay. Because we, we like it, turns out. Yeah. Oh, you know, over 200 episodes in. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.